Section 23 of Natural Theology by William Paley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 22. Astronomy. Part 1. My opinion of astronomy has always been that it is not the best medium through which to prove the agency of an intelligent creator, but that, this being proved, it shows beyond all other sciences the magnificence of his operations. The mind which is once convinced, it raises to sublimer views of the deity than any other subject affords. But it is not so well adapted, as some other subjects are, to the purpose of argument. We are destitute of the means of examining the constitution of the heavenly bodies. The very simplicity of their appearance is against them. We see nothing but bright points, luminous circles, or the phases of spheres reflecting the light which falls upon them. Now we deduce design from relation, aptitude, and correspondence of parts. Some degree, therefore, of complexity is necessary to render a subject fit for this species of argument. But the heavenly bodies do not, except perhaps in the instance of Saturn's ring, present themselves to our observation as compounded of parts at all. This, which may be a perfection in them, is a disadvantage to us as inquirers after their nature. They do not come within our mechanics. And what we say of their forms is true of their motions. Their motions are carried on without any sensible intermediate apparatus, whereby we are cut off from one principal ground of argumentation, analogy. We have nothing wherewith to compare them, no invention, no discovery, no operation or resource of art, which, in this respect, resembles them. Even those things which are made to imitate and represent them, such as oreries, planetaria, celestial globes, etc., bear no affinity to them in the cause and principle by which their motions are actuated. I can assign for this difference a reason of utility, viz., a reason why, though the action of terrestrial bodies upon each other be, in almost all cases, through the intervention of solid or fluid substances, yet central attraction does not operate in this manner. It was necessary that the intervals between the planetary orbs should be devoid of any inert matter, either fluid or solid, because such an intervening substance would, by its resistance, destroy those very motions which attraction is employed to preserve. This may be a final cause of the difference, but still the difference destroys the analogy. Our ignorance, moreover, of the sensitive natures by which other planets are inhabited, necessarily keeps from us the knowledge of numberless utilities, relations, and subserviencies which we perceive upon our own globe. After all, the real subject of admiration is that we understand so much of astronomy as we do, that an animal confined to the surface of one of the planets, bearing a less proportion to it than the smallest microscopic insect does to the plant it lives upon, that this little busy, inquisitive creature, by the use of senses which were given to it for its domestic necessities, and by means of the assistance of those senses which it has had the art to procure, should have been enabled to observe the whole system of worlds to which its own belongs, the changes of place of the immense globes which compose it, and with such accuracy as to mark out beforehand the situation in the heavens in which they will be found at any future point of time, and that these bodies, after sailing through regions of void and trackless space, should arrive at the place where they were expected, not within a minute, but within a few seconds of a minute, of the time prefixed and predicted, all this is wonderful, whether we refer our admiration to the constancy of the heavenly motions themselves, or to the perspicacity and precision with which they have been noticed by mankind. Nor is this the whole, nor indeed the chief part, of what astronomy teaches. 
by bringing reason to bear upon observation, the acutest reasoning upon the exactest observation, the astronomer has been able, out of the mystic dance and the confusion, for such it is, under which the motions of the heavenly bodies present themselves to the eye of a mere gazer upon the skies, to elicit their order and their real paths. Our knowledge, therefore, of astronomy is admirable, though imperfect, and, amidst the confessed desiderata and desideranda, which impede our investigation of the wisdom of the deity in these the grandest of his works, there are to be found in the phenomena ascertained circumstances and laws sufficient to indicate an intellectual agency in three of its principal operations, viz., in choosing, in determining, in regulating. In choosing, out of a boundless variety of suppositions which were equally possible, that which is beneficial, in determining what, left to itself, had a thousand chances against conveniency for one in its favor, in regulating subjects as to quantity and degree, which, by their nature, were unlimited with respect to either. It will be our business to offer, under each of these heads, a few instances such as best admit of a popular explication. 1. Amongst proofs of choice, one is fixing the source of light and heat in the center of the system. The sun is ignited and luminous, the planets which move round him cold and dark. There seems to be no antecedent necessity for this order. The sun might have been an opaque mass, some one or two or more or any or all the planets globes of fire. There is nothing in the nature of the heavenly bodies which requires that those which are stationary should be on fire, that those which move should be cold. For, in fact, comets are bodies on fire, or at least capable of the most intense heat, yet revolve round a center. Nor does this order obtain between the primary planets and their secondaries, which are all opaque. When we consider, therefore, that the sun is one, that the planets going round it are at least seven, that it is indifferent to their nature, which are luminous and which are opaque, and also in what order, with respect to each other, these two kinds of bodies are disposed, we may judge of the improbability of the present arrangement taking place by chance. If, by way of accounting for the state in which we find the solar system, it be alleged, and this is one amongst the guesses of those who reject an intelligent creator, that the planets themselves are only cooled or cooling masses, and were once, like the sun, many thousand times hotter than red-hot iron, then it follows that the sun also himself must be in his progress toward growing cold, which puts an end to the possibility of his having existed, as he is, from eternity. This consequence arises out of the hypothesis with still more certainty, if we make a part of it what the philosophers who maintain it have usually taught, that the planets were originally masses of matter struck off in a state of fusion from the body of the sun by the percussion of a comet, or by a shock from some other cause with which we are not acquainted. For if these masses, partaking of the nature and substance of the sun's body, have in process of time lost their heat, that body itself, in time likewise, no matter in how much longer time, must lose its heat also, and therefore be incapable of an eternal duration in the state in which we see it, either for the time to come or the time past. The preference of the present to any other mode of distributing luminous and opaque bodies I take to be evident. It requires more astronomy than I am able to lay before the reader to show in its particulars what would be the effect to the system of a dark body at the center and of one of the planets being luminous. But I think it manifest, without either plates or calculation, first, that supposing the necessary proportion of magnitude between the central and the revolving bodies to be preserved, 
the ignited planet would not be sufficient to illuminate and warm the rest of the system. Secondly, that its light and heat would be imparted to the other planets much more irregularly than light and heat are now received from the sun. 2. Another thing in which a choice appears to be exercised, and in which, amongst the possibilities out of which the choice was to be made, the number of those which were wrong bore an infinite proportion to the number of those which were right, is in what geometricians call the axis of rotation. This matter I will endeavor to explain. The earth, it is well known, is not an exact globe, but an oblate spheroid, something like an orange. Now the axes of rotation, or the diameters upon which such a body may be made to turn round, are as many as can be drawn through its center to opposite points upon its whole surface. But of these axes, none are permanent except either its shortest diameter, i.e. that which passes through the heart of the orange from the place where the stalk is inserted into it, and which is but one, or its longest diameters, at right angles with the former, which must all terminate in the single circumference which goes round the thickest part of the orange. The shortest diameter is that upon which, in fact, the earth turns. And it is, as the reader sees, what it ought to be, a permanent axis. Whereas, had blind chance, had a casual impulse, had a stroke or push at random, set the earth a-spinning, the odds were infinite but that they had sent it round upon a wrong axis. And what would have been the consequence? The difference between a permanent axis and another axis is this. When a spheroid in a state of rotatory motion gets upon a permanent axis, it keeps there. It remains steady and faithful to its position. Its poles preserve their direction with respect to the plane and to the center of its orbit. But whilst it turns upon an axis which is not permanent, and the number of those we have seen infinitely exceeds the number of the other, it is always liable to shift and vacillate from one axis to another, with a corresponding change in the inclination of its poles. Therefore, if a planet once set off revolving upon any other than its shortest, or one of its longest, axes, the poles on its surface would keep perpetually changing, and it never would attain a permanent axis of rotation. The effect of this unfixedness and instability would be that the equatorial parts of the Earth might become the polar, or the polar the equatorial, to the utter destruction of plants and animals which are not capable of interchanging their situations, but are respectively adapted to their own. As to ourselves, instead of rejoicing in our temperate zone, and annually preparing for the moderate vicissitude, or rather the agreeable succession, of seasons, which we experience and expect, we might come to be locked up in the ice and darkness of the Arctic Circle, with bodies neither inured to its rigors, nor provided with shelter or defense against them. Nor would it be much better if the trepidation of our pole, taking an opposite course, should place us under the heats of a vertical sun. But if it would fare so ill with the human inhabitant, who can live under greater varieties of latitude than any other animal, still more noxious would this translation of climate have proved to life in the rest of the creation, and most perhaps of all in plants. The habitable earth, and its beautiful variety, might have been destroyed by a simple mischance in the axis of rotation. 3. All this, however, proceeds upon a supposition of the earth having been formed at first an oblate spheroid. There is another supposition, and perhaps our limited information will not enable us to decide between them. The second supposition is that the earth, being a mixed mass, somewhat fluid, took, as it might do, its present form by the joint action of the mutual gravitation of its parts and its rotatory motion. This, as we have said, 
is a point in the history of the earth which our observations are not sufficient to determine for a very small depth below the surface but extremely small less perhaps than an eight thousandth part compared with the depth of the centre we find vestiges of ancient fluidity but this fluidity must have gone down many hundred times farther than we can penetrate to enable the earth to take its present oblate form and whether any traces of this kind exist to that depth we are ignorant calculations were made a few years ago of the mean density of the earth by comparing the force of its attraction with the force of attraction of a rock of granite the bulk of which could be ascertained and the upshot of the calculation was that the earth upon an average through its whole sphere has twice the density of granite or about five times that of water therefore it cannot be a hollow shell as some have formerly supposed nor can its internal parts be occupied by central fire or by water the solid parts must greatly exceed the fluid parts and the probability is that it is a solid mass throughout composed of substances more ponderous the deeper we go nevertheless we may conceive the present face of the earth to have originated from the revolution of a sphere covered by a surface of a compound mixture the fluid and solid parts separating as the surface becomes quiescent here then comes in the moderating hand of the creator if the water had exceeded its present proportion even but by a trifling quantity compared with the whole globe all the land would have been covered had there been much less than there is there would not have been enough to fertilize the continent had the exsiccation been progressive such as we may suppose to have been produced by an evaporating heat how came it to stop at the point at which we see it why did it not stop sooner why at all the mandate of the deity will account for this nothing else will four of centripetal forces by virtue of the simplest law that can be imagined viz that a body continues in the state in which it is whether of motion or rest and if in motion goes on in the line in which it was proceeding and with the same velocity unless there be some cause for change by virtue i say of this law it comes to pass what may appear to be a strange consequence that cases arise in which attraction incessantly drawing a body towards a centre never brings nor ever will bring the body to that centre but keep it in eternal circulation round it if it were possible to fire off a cannon-ball with the velocity of five miles in a second and the resistance of the air could be taken away the cannon-ball would forever wheel round the earth instead of falling down upon it this is the principle which sustains the heavenly motions the deity having appointed this law to matter than which as we have said before no law could be more simple has turned it to a wonderful account in constructing planetary systems the actuating cause in these systems is an attraction which varies reciprocally as the square of the distance that is at double the distance has a quarter of the force at half the distance four times the strength and so on now concerning this law of variation we have three things to observe first that attraction for anything we know about it was just as capable of one law of variation as of another secondly that out of an infinite number of possible laws those which were admissible for the purpose of supporting the heavenly motions lay within certain narrow limits thirdly that of the admissible laws or those which come within the limits prescribed the law that actually prevails is the most beneficial so far as these propositions can be made out we may be said i think to prove choice and regulation choice out of boundless variety and regulation of that which by its own nature was in respect of the property regulated indifferent and indefinite 
1. First, then, attraction, for anything we know about it, was originally indifferent to all laws of variation depending upon change of distance, i.e., just as susceptible of one law as of another. It might have been the same at all distances, it might have increased as the distance increased, or it might have diminished with the increase of the distance. Yet in ten thousand different proportions from the present, it might have followed no stated law at all. If attraction be, what Coates, with many other Newtonians, thought it to be, a primordial property of matter, not dependent upon or traceable to any other material cause, then, by the very nature and definition of a primordial property, it stood indifferent to all laws. If it be the agency of something immaterial, then also, for anything we know of it, it was indifferent to all laws. If the revolution of bodies round a center depend upon vortices, neither are these limited to one law more than another. There is, I know, an account given of attraction which should seem, in its very cause, to assign to it the law which we find it to observe, and which, therefore, makes that law a law not of choice but of necessity. And it is the account which ascribes attraction to an emanation from the attracting body. It is probable that the influence of such an emanation will be proportioned to the spissitude of the rays of which it is composed, which spissitude, supposing the rays to issue in right lines on all sides from a point, will be reciprocally as the square of the distance. The mathematics of this solution we do not call in question. The question with us is whether there be any sufficient reason for believing that attraction is produced by an emanation. For my part, I am totally at a loss to comprehend how particles streaming from a center should draw a body towards it. The impulse, if impulse it be, is all the other way. Nor shall we find less difficulty in conceiving a conflux of particles, incessantly flowing to a center, and carrying down all bodies along with it, that center also itself being in a state of rapid motion through absolute space. For by what source is the stream fed, or what becomes of the accumulation? Add to which that it seems to imply a contrariety of properties to suppose an ethereal fluid to act, but not to resist. Powerful enough to carry down bodies with great force towards a center, yet inconsistently with the nature of inert matter, powerless and perfectly yielding with respect to the motions which result from the projectile impulse. By calculations drawn from ancient notices of eclipses of the moon, we can prove that, if such a fluid exist at all, its resistance has had no sensible effect upon the moon's motion for 2,500 years. The truth is that, except this one circumstance of the variation of the attracting force at different distances agreeing with the variation of the spissitude, there is no reason whatever to support the hypothesis of an emanation, and, as it seems to me, almost insuperable reasons against it. End of section 23